Well, again, welcome to Genesis. We're in a uh, series and we're going through, it's called Relent, and we're kind of reshaping this season of time that the church has celebrated historically between uh, like 40 days leading up to Easter, not counting Sundays. Um, and it has been something that the church has practiced that also looks into the 40 uh, days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And so for the last number of weeks and for two more weeks, we're going to look at this wilderness experience of Jesus and the temptations. And so last week, we, uh, the first week, Liz did a great job of setting up all the temptations. And last week, we went into that first temptation, that temptation to turn the rocks into bread. And we said it was this temptation for Jesus to make himself useful, right? Even though he had spent this time of just being with God and just being assured of God's love and presence, the temptation was to do something useful. Do something meaningful. Turn to bread. Turn these rocks into bread, and you'll feed a multitude of people. And Jesus withstood that temptation, and we too, like Jesus, are tempted to continually live our lives to make them useful, to do something relevant in the world, to feel that pressure of that. And a lot of times we can lose track of just being with God and his love and allowing God's love to continue to send us out into the world. So we talked about the practice of contemplative prayer is a way of just being in God's presence in prayer. And so um, I threw out a couple contemplative prayers and it was really kind of funny because I had lost my orthodox prayer rope. It's a thing of, it's a way to pray um, to the Jesus prayer using the rope and I ordered one that came in on Monday. But also on Monday when I went to the gym, one of my friends there gave me a rosary ring. He dropped it into my bag. Here's a picture of a rosary ring. Um, and so on it is this cross, and you stick it on your index finger like this. And as you put your thumb on the cross like this, you would pray the Our Father or, or the Lord's Prayer. Um, as you know it, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you'd pray that, and then you'd spin it, and you'd hit the bead. Now, this is a rosary prayer, so as the Catholics, you'd pray the rosary. Um, I, I was praying the Jesus prayer, which is one the Eastern Orthodox used, and the Jesus prayer is the one that I shot up there. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pray on the first bead, spin it to the second. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Spin it to the th- right, so you just continue to spin it. And sit in this contemplative space of just being with God and calling upon his peace as it spins around your finger. You hit the cross again, you pray the Lord's Prayer. I found myself, I, I, he gave it to me on Monday. I lost it on Monday, Monday when I gave it to my son to play with. <laughs> I found it on Monday under the rug, and it has been in my pocket since. Um, and I found it so useful, I had to buy a number of them. Now, I bought 50 of them or 52 of them. So here's, here's a, one of those. If you, if you think it could be something useful for you, take one. If you're weirded out by it and you don't like tactile, pass it to the next person. But if you would use it, take it. If they run out, I'll buy 100 more next week because it'll tell me, you know, they were $1.50, right? It's not like they're like, or you can go online and buy your own, right? But it's a tactile tool to use in prayer. And if they do run out quickly, if you, if you like them and that, I'll, I'll get some more. Um, so we might run out, but it's a tactile tool, right, in order to help us. And my friend gave it to me, and he was like, man, just stick it in your pocket, and when you feel weak, pull it out. And when I tell you how often I had this in my hand last week, all the time, right? All the time. 
And I was praying that simple night. My wife, my Car- I told Carmel about it. She bought one. And she bought a really kind of cool one that goes on your finger and it spins and stuff. Um, so, and, and she found herself praying a different prayer. Yeah, it, I don't know if it really matters what prayer you're praying. I think the prayer can be easy. It should be short. It should be simple. But it's something you can just stick in your pocket and just call upon God. So what a super cool tool, huh? This is a rosary ring. My friend gave it to me. And uh, I, was, I felt really loved. Uh, it's not something, you know, you could also use it for others. I was just told um, about Dan Putry, uh, that his, his, his cancer numbers are down, right? That he's not, he's not doing good, Sharon, right? You're saying he's got a cold, and so he's not feeling well, and his numbers are elevated with his bone cancer. And one of these, these prayers, too, the contemplative prayers were meant to, but we can also pray that Jesus prayer for others. We can say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on Dan, a sinner. Right? Have mercy on him. Remember him, Lord. And we can remember those in need as we spin this around. I found this amazing when I was driving. I had it in my hand when I was driving, and I would just didn't pray that prayer as I was going between places. Um, I wasn't as angry. Um, I wasn't as in much as a hurry. Um, and, and I was mindful. So um, may this tool be helpful for you. And as we go in. So that was one of the practices last week, and I found myself doing a lot. I actually, I actually found myself doing the centering prayer as well for any of you who tried to do that as well for 20 to 30 minutes. If you want to, you can go online. You can find all kinds of resources for the centering prayer. That was much harder. Anybody try it? It's hard, right? It's just hard to just to be open to God's love and just be present and do nothing else. It, it's difficult, but it's such a good practice. But today I want to look at the second temptation of Jesus when he was in the desert. And this is in Matthew 4, when he went into the desert. And I'm going to begin again from the beginning, um, just so we can read through the temptations again. So this is in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 7. They'll be on the screen behind me. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. This is the second temptation. Took him to Jerusalem in the holy city. And had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This was a prophetic text in the prophets. And it was said about the Messiah. And that Jesus answered him. And it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So this temptation of Jesus as he's in this wilderness was to take himself into the, one of the central places of Jewish life in Jerusalem, the place of uh, corporate worship, the temple. Their homes and the synagogues were amazing places, but the temple was the center. Right? It was this place of worship, of study, of prayer, and go to the highest point, the pinnacle of the temple, and here's a picture of sort of the edge of sort of the modern thing. I don't know exactly what that pinnacle of the temple would have been, but it would have place that if Jesus would throw himself off of it, and all of a sudden the angels catch him, it'd be something that we observed and witnessed by those, the worshiping people of Israel who were at the temple, it would have been something spectacular. It would have been amazing. And in that amazing feat, Jesus would show himself spectacular, and then all of a sudden he would have a crowd, 
he would have a following. Everybody would know, oh, you're the son, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. Oh, and this would move Jesus to accomplish all that he was meant to do. It was that kind of temptation. Henry Nouwen says it's the temptation to be spectacular. To show this sort of individual heroicism. And Jesus is not the only one who was tempted with this kind of thing. Do something spectacular. We all are. We live in a context and a culture where we are tempted on every turn. Show your skill. Do something spectacular. Do this in the world. In some way, now and talked about that life under this temptation to be spectacular as a leader, within your community, within your job, and sort of living as a tightrope artist, moving from one tower to the next on this thin cable, waiting for the applause when you don't fall off and break your leg, walking the tightrope. And so all of a sudden you see them, you know, above there, and you're going to walk it on this steady line that only you can do, and you make it to the other side, and everyone cheers you on for the great feat that you have just done. Why, many of us believe that we're meant to do something like that, right? That we're meant to do this sort of individualistic, something spectacular, we'll receive the applause of people, and we kind of fall into that temptation again and, and again. And in this kind of feat of doing something spectacular, many of us feel that if we have anything of skill to show, that we must do it alone. We must show ourselves in this skill. There's something beautiful about entering this season of Lent, entering this season remembering in the wilderness, and to resist against this temptation to do something spectacular, especially doing it alone. That we weren't meant to live that way. Jesus himself, when he resisted this temptation to do something individualistic and spectacular, solo feat, because he could have, he could have come, he could have stepped out into the world, did a few teachings, and then all of a sudden made all the people mad from the Roman people saying that he is Lord, made all of the leaders within the, or the, the temple system mad and got himself crucified just like that. He, he could have done it, but, but he doesn't. What does he do? He gets, uh, he gets disciples. He all of a sudden doesn't do anything alone. He says, come and be with me. A number of young men and women that he pulls around him and not to do things alone. That there is this communal experience that is part of the life of Jesus. There, there was a movie that came out recently that um, highlights the uh, communal experience. And it was one of my, my favorite movies that I watched last year. One of the best movies I saw. I, I'm not for sure exactly when it came out. I think it's somewhat recent, but it's on Netflix now. It's called The Dawn Wall, and it's a documentary about a rock climber. There's two famous rock climbing documentaries out right now. One's called Free Solo, about a guy who um, does the opposite of what I'm going to talk about right now. He, he free climbs by himself with no ropes, just him, up the granite face of Yosemite, right, of El Capitan. This other one is called The Dawn Wall. I want to show you the, the preview because it, it will tell the concept of this movie. So um, if if you like previews like myself, here you go. This movie's called The Dawn Wall, and it's on Netflix, and you can watch it. When you see El Capitan for the first time, I mean, it takes your breath away. Early in the morning, there's this one panel of the wall that illuminates first. 
the Don Wall. It has never been climbed until Tommy Caldwell came along. Nobody had actually considered trying it. It's like stepping off the edge of the earth. Very fragile little kid. He didn't crawl till he was over two. I think my dad felt the best way to prepare this kid for the world was to toughen him up a little bit. And so he took me on all the craziest climbing walls you could ever do, and he did it with a six-year-old. By the time I was 14 or 15, there was climbs that I could do that my dad couldn't. Tommy became one of the best young climbers. And then he got invited to Kyrgyzstan to rock climb. And all of a sudden, we were hostages. After being held captive for six days, four young Americans confront the ultimate choice to kill or be killed. He saved their lives. But he became a different person. Ever since Kyrgyzstan, I just have this fire in me. This has always been my safe place, my way to deal with life. And I was looking across at the Dawn Wall, the last unclimbed big swath of stone. I decided. Maybe that could be climbed. I needed a partner. Kevin, he was one of the best in the world. It only up to 30 feet. But everybody else thought I was crazy. At this point, I have no idea what I'm getting into. It's about to consume six years of my life. This is a pipe dream, man. Come on. Nothing left to do but just take a couple deep breaths. If Tommy and Kevin can actually do this, it will be... Come on! most difficult climb ever done. And it's gonna go on day after day. Suddenly the whole world was watching. Ah! And one of them stuck. Ah! It was pretty clear that that was it. I don't wanna look back. Maybe this climb really was impossible. Ah! We are capable of so much more than we could ever imagine. Awesome, huh? There you go. Uh, you should watch it. It's, it's an amazing documentary. I love the parenting stuff in it, and I love the friendship stuff in it. And so if you caught a little bit on the premise, this, this guy named Tommy Caldwell, right? He's like a great rock. I don't rock climb. And we got your kids in here, too, so maybe they'll want to go rock climbing now, kids. Go for it. Awesome. So with it, these two climbers, Tommy was like, oh, I need a partner. I need someone to do it. So he finds this guy named Kevin, and he's like the best boulder in the world, right? But boulders aren't the big wall climbers. He, he just does like 30-foot sections at a time. But Kevin is the only person crazy enough to join them and to, to say, I'll do this. I'll spend six years of my life with you trying to go up this route. So they eventually try to do it, and they start climbing. Um, and it's all like these, they, they route it up. And says so there's like a number of different sections, and they label them all, and they number them all, and they go through them. And one of the guys, Kevin, he gets stuck. Meaning that he can't complete that section without falling. Now, they have harnesses, they have ropes, they're completely safe. They're not doing any of this in a way that if they failed, they would fall because they fail all the time. But they, they, Kevin can't complete this one route. And Tommy does. He completes it. And then Kevin, days upon days, can't get past this section, and their whole goal was for them to complete this and climb up this one route that has never been climbed and do so. 
And Kemp's like, Tommy, I'm holding you back. There's only so much time when the weather is fitting for them to be up there in order to complete this. And so he's like, Tommy, I'm holding you back. I'll, I'll, you go on. I'll just belay you. I'll be your safety person. But you keep climbing. And, and Tommy does. He goes on for another few days, and he, and he gets to another key spot. And all of a sudden, Tommy's like, I don't want to go on without Kevin. It w- and, and, and at this point, he's gonna, he could finish it within a couple days and be the only person ever, ever, to climb this route, ever. And he's like, I don't want to. It wouldn't be as good alone. And he climbs back down, joins up with Kevin, because Kevin had decided, I'm just there for you, I'm not going on. And he says, Kevin, I don't want to do it without you. I'll stay here as long as it takes, or we'll just be done. What kind of friend is that? That's a picture of friendship, right? Where it's, it, we weren't meant to do stuff alone. This is a communal experience of being in life together. And none of us were meant to try to prove our spectacularness alone. We were meant to go with each other because it's way better Way better. I thought the best part of that whole movie was not the fact that they actually, they do it. The best part is this journey of getting to do it with others. Of being invited into things that bring you life. And to say, oh, the best part is the communal experience. Not this, this great individual experience. And yet the life of Jesus continues to draw us into this. Not to do something spectacular, but to go with others. To go with others on this journey. But, the, but this journey with Jesus is not only a communal experience, it's a mutual experience. Jesus himself, when he was talking about the shepherding role, and he invites his disciples to be shepherds of others, especially for Peter. He says, Peter, feed my sheep. He invites them into the shepherding experience. And so when Jesus himself described himself as a shepherd, here's what he says. I'm the good shepherd in chapter 10 of John. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So this shepherding experience, Jesus is the only good one. But he, when he says, oh, I'm the shepherd, I know my sheep, they, they know me. See, this idea of joining Jesus on this journey of our lives is one where it's mutual. It's meaning, I know you and you know me. In the same way that Jesus said, I know my sheep and they know me. It's just not that the shepherd is like, oh, well, I mean, I know them, but they don't know anything of me. No, we're sharing everything of our lives together. See, it's mutual because when we're on this journey together of following Jesus, it's mutual that we have weaknesses. And you know mine and I know yours. There's no spectacular people. Tim Keller is a famous teacher. Famous is probably the wrong term, but he's a well-known teacher within the church. And, and, he's, and when he was studying through the book of Joseph, um, he said this. He said, um, it was the big point of the story. And it says, like, uh, when, he, when you look at the messes of our lives, he said this. Um, we don't get there alone. When there's a mess around your life, you didn't get there alone. It's not all your fault. And you don't get out of there alone. Right? It's just part of, it's a mutual experience. And I was thinking about this because um, I've had these planner warts on my foot. 
for, um, gosh, four years, I think. Ridiculous amount of time to have planner warts. Um, and planner warts are terrible because they spread, right? And they're annoying, and they're there. Um, and you do know how you get planner's warts? From someone else. They're contagious, <laughs> right? I mean, right? They're, you step somewhere where somebody else had one, and all of a sudden you get it. You know, right? So I didn't get there alone. But all of a sudden, I'm like, oh. So I didn't mess with it for the longest time. I had a planner one. I'm like, oh, whatever. What do you do? And all of a sudden, it spreads. And I got two. And I got three. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to take care of this. And I buy, like, the acid stick. And I start using duct tape because I went online and researched. And it eats your feet alive, right? And I spent all summer duct taping with my flip-flops and stuff. And my feet are all beat to crap. And right, it's awful. They're bleeding on the sides of them. And they didn't go away. And so eventually I'm like, wait a minute, I can go to a doctor, right? <laughs> uh, dermatologist, yeah, those are great people. You can go to them. So I go. And he gets out the gun to freeze them, like the liquid, liquid nitrogen, you know? And he's like, Shh, And he's like, oh, yeah, his name's Dr. Coger, right? So I'm like, okay, so I go and I do that. And I'm like, oh, so what do I do? He's like, oh, come back in a few weeks and we'll, and we'll do it again. Um, I, I think that was, it, it was maybe October. I'm still going every two weeks. And do you know what else I'm doing? Duct tape and acid. And you know what? I got one left. Whew. You don't, I didn't get there by myself. And I don't get out by myself. I've needed his help. I've been there so often, Dr. Kogan and I are becoming friends. We talk about barbecue. He knows all the details of my life. I'm going to be sad when I have to leave Dr. Koger and I because we become buddies. We need each other. So what's the discipline in this reality that we can engage in if there is this temptation to be spectacular and to be spectacular alone? To show yourself as something awesome. You know, like, you know, right on Facebook, to show yourself as an influencer, <clears throat> that you know everything. What, what's the discipline? Well, what Henry Nouwen says, it's this awesome discipline of confession. Because confession is one of the ones where we enter into this mutual experience of one another. Where we would confess our weaknesses and our shortcomings with one another. How do you create a culture of vulnerability? Of mutuality? confession. And so when I say this, let me get into this. <clears throat> to create a discipline of confession. So do I mean like corporate confession or private confession? Corporate would mean like maybe we'd stand up here in each one and set up a microphone and everybody would just share out loud all the bad things they've done. Or is it private meaning or another corporate would maybe just between Derek and I where we would confess our sins to one another. That'd be corporate. Um, but maybe private confession would be oh it's between the individual and God. And so we go to God, and we will confess our sins to God. So which one is it? Yes! Well, maybe not the one where we would set the microphone and do it, but, but it's, it's both, this corporate and this private. Now, the scriptures kind of paint out this picture in, in, in 1 Timothy when, when it says this, when we get into the private matter. And this is the thing when the Reformation came in that was very a big deal, right? It was... It was this thing that said, 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, 
So the mediator of our faith, the savior of our faith, the one that we are going to, who is mediating, who is stepping, the go-between in our relationships with God is Jesus. So it is, in some sense, a private matter between Jesus and us. But also, if you go to James, in the book of James, in James 5.16, he encourages the early believers at this time, therefore confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So it's both and. It's both and neither need to be excluded. I want to encourage us, the thing that I want to encourage us to do is the corporate confession. As a discipline over this time of Lent. And my encouragement to you is that between now and Easter, which is another three weeks to find one person whom you could confess to. Your sins. That's going to be the action out of today. We're going to do a corporate prayer of confession that will not be specific, but that, that will be the takeaway that I want us to do. And, but here's a couple things why this is so significant. Now Jesus, after he had, was crucified and he rose from the dead, he shows up for his disciples And he begins to teach them. Here's what he says to them. And again, I think this is so impactful and so interesting. And he shows up to him and says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He's sending them on the same vocation that Jesus had to be a blessing in this world. To proclaim the favor with God, the forgiveness of sins, right? And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Ruach HaKadosh, the breath of God. Receive this. And then he says this in verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. If you forgive them of their sins, they are forgiven. There's this authority that's given to any follower of Jesus to say, you, you, you have the authority to forgive sins. How many of you hold that in your back pocket? How many of you practice this authority? Now, now, again, the back half says that if you don't forgive them, they won't be forgiven. I'm, I'm not talking, you know, like, goodness. Focus on the, on the positive here. If you forgive them, you have this authority to forgive sins. That is real. That's the authority that Jesus gave his followers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he writes, and he, he's writing in time, and so, uh, but he's writing, he says, our, he, here's one of his things he wrote in this book called Community. Our brother, or our brothers and our sisters, they have been given to us to help us. They hear the confession of our sins in Christ's stead, and they forgive our sins in Christ's name. They keep the secret of our confession as God keeps it. And when we go to our brothers and sisters to confess, we are going to God. We have this authority to be able to forgive. And there's this place, even though we don't need a mediator, we've been given this authority to represent Jesus. And here's the thing. So do you think that you've got that authority to do so? I mean, aren't the priests the only ones who can do so? Well, the scriptures teach us that all believers are priests. 1 Peter 2, 9 but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're God's special possession. 
that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. It's the priesthood of all believers. Now, that, you know, so if you started out and you're like, man, Bo, this is really interesting. You came out and you, you gave us a rosary ring and you're teaching us these ancient prayers and now you're inviting us into confession and telling we're all priests. It's like, what's the next thing you're going to know? Well, today I was in the Catholic store or I was in the religious goods store And I, I've been wanting one of these shirts for a long time. So, for $50, church, you can buy one. Don't let any guy. I walked in there. We are all priests. So I want you to go to the religious store, buy yourself one of these things. Now, okay, yeah, right? So I had a friend that says, um, it's okay to be Jesus weird. Jesus weird is when you do the things that Jesus told you to do. But let's do our best not to be religious weird. Eh, if you're not really a priest, you probably shouldn't wear the shirt with the collar. That's religious weird, right? But, but, there, but there is something interesting, right, about the, the reality of clothing ourselves as Christ and standing for saying we are all priests. And Jesus has given us the authority to be able to forgive sins. To be able to forgive sins and um, in this word, and to declare with authority, those sins are gone. Now, now again, whose benefit do you think that's for? Do you think that um, for, for really that, that I'm doing something spectacular if I'm hearing someone's confession? That now God hears it better is it for God's benefit that there is someone hearing this confession or is it for the one who's confessing? Oh, it's for them, right? The, the benefit. Here's, here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer quoted again in his book called, about community. It says, a man who confesses, a man or woman who confesses their sins in the presence of a brother or sister know that he is no longer alone. They're no longer alone in themselves. They experience the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as they are by themselves in the confession, there's this chance or the reality that there's sins, that, 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 that sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother and sister, the sin has to be brought into the light. Right? There's, this, there's this reality of our really being brought, brought into the light when we confess with another person. I loved this, this encouragement when it comes to confession. Um, and it says this, Remember the heart of the Father. He's like a shepherd who will risk anything to find the one lost sheep. We do not have to make God willing to forgive. In fact, it is God who is working to make us willing to seek forgiveness and so i want to invite us to kind of continue to create a culture of vulnerability i want to invite you to practice confession once in the next three weeks so i want to give you some tips about how to do this how do you confess and how do you receive a confession because i think we just need to learn how to do it because as a culture we don't do this so first off, I had a buddy at a church. He told me that he does this, and, and he told me that he did it, and he answers these five questions, and he does it with our elders, and he does it with those other key staff people, and he confesses to them to create a culture of vulnerability. 
that says, hey, we are in this mutual experience of our own weakness, in this mutual experience of needing Jesus, mutual experience of needing and receiving, of giving and receiving grace of God and being beneficiaries of the love of God and expressing these amazing truths of forgiveness that are secure and founded. So he shared that with me, and after I did it, I'm like, man, I'm, my practice of really specifically confessing is, is terrible. So I, I called up Nate. This must have been like two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. I think it was two weeks ago. I said, Nate, come over. I want to talk to you about something. He, who knows what he thought I wanted to talk to him about. And then he comes over to Nate. I just want to confess my sins to you, right? And he's like, okay, you know. And, and so we did it. I, I, I shared it with him specifically in details. And then invite him to pray for me, right? To receive my confession and to pray. See, the scriptures don't give us any, um, they don't give us any kind of mandate. They don't give us any kind of specificity about how often and when and where and how. They just kind of encourage us to do it. So let me just give you a few, knowing that it's for our good to do this. Knowing that it does lead us into a stronger community context. It does help us battle against our own temptations, but also the temptation to be spectacular. And so let me give you a couple um, of just sort of wisdom things. Uh, Richard Foster is great on this in his book on the disciplines. If you want to look at it, his stuff is super. Um, But here's a couple of wisdom things with the confession, just just straight out there. It's probably best to... um, to, to share your confession, your confession, if that was with a friend, with the same sex, especially if it's of a sexual nature of some kind, right? So it might just be better to find someone of the, the, the same sex. Um, and then also, just to kind of beware confessing something that might release you but hurt somebody else. Does that make sense? So if I was meeting with Derek and I was like, oh, Derek, I want to confess some of my sins. Here's my sin, Derek. I really find, I've been finding your personality really difficult to bear. <laughs> oh, forgive me. Right? So if you have some tact about what you're confessing, that, that's hurtful stuff, right? So if it's going to hurt the other person, don't share it with them, right? So just a couple cautions in there. Here's how to confess. Three steps. You ready? For those of you who are willing to step into this in the next three weeks, here's two things. One, um, there's an examination of conscience. Two, um, it should be met with some sort of sorrow or regret, right? Three, um, a determination to avoid that sin. So examination of conscience. So we're, we're invited sort of to, ex- to examine. So say, God, God, search me. I love this um, prayer from the Psalms, Psalms 139, 23, and 24. It's like, God, search me and know me, Right? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any, uh, any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. So in this, you could take that and you could pray that and say, God, search me. God, what? Now, most of us, when we have our shortcomings, when we have our issues, man, they're like, they're like the top of head, right? We, they're, they're right there. We know. But sometimes it's just even helpful to say, oh, God, expose me. Expose the motives of my heart when it comes to my money, when it comes to my thoughts, when it comes to my motivations. When it comes to that, and maybe you have a sheet of paper and, and a pencil and you write the stuff down that comes out there. Or maybe you don't need it and you know it. The, the, the whole part is not that you got to list everything and get it perfect. The whole part is this practice of engaging this beautiful practice of confession. So, but there is some sort of examination, a thoughtful examination. God, search me, help me. You could write those down, right? 
the next part of there is, is just this reality of, um, we mentioned sorrow, regret. Now, sorrow doesn't have to be um, a, an emotion where it's like, oh, you're crying. Doesn't mean that it couldn't be. Emotion may be involved. But I like the idea of regret. It's a deep regret in having committed the sin or having offended the heart of God. It's this regret that says, ah, I, I regret how my heart has turned this way and is hard or is angry or is mad or despises or looks down on this person for whatever reason. Regret the thoughts that are coming to head, my head that are not faithful and the ones that I might even pursue towards the person who God has invited me to covenant to. Regret this because it's not loving, right? So it's that. So it's that sense of regret. And, and then the third part would be um, this desire to avoid, I like called a willing spirit, a willingness. Now, there's times when I have a willing spirit and there's times when I do not. Do you, have you been there? When you, you, when, you, when you will, when you're like, oh God, let me will what you will. And there's times when I know I don't will what you will. And so it, there's this long, that third part is to, is to have a willing spirit. And when I was with Nate, I was like, oh man, Nate, I want to have a willing spirit. And I always reminded of Psalm 53. This was when King David had sinned, and, and grievously, right? He sinned. And this was a prayer that he wrote down, a psalm that he wrote. And there's this portion of this that I love. It says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. When I read that, grant me, God, a willing spirit. God, God grant me a spirit to will what you will. Not, not what I will, but what you will. So that's a part of a confession. Sound good? Do you think you could do it? Man, you guys seem like you're ready. You're like, you're like, want me to get a box out there and you guys join and jump in and we'll start confessing. Let's do it. All right, how to um, receive a confession. Because this is a mutual thing. And I think this is just as crucial and just as important. So when you're, when you're preparing to do this, we also have to know this. Even though theologically, everyone can receive a confession. Sadly, there may be some of us who, who do not have the tact or the character that we would then be willing to share a confession with them because we know that they, they do not hold secrets. They share things to whomever and everyone, and they just don't have the emotional intelligence to be able to receive it. It's not a theological thing. You just say, oh, this is not a trustworthy thing. And so we're going to be wise about who we share this with. If it's not a trustworthy person, then we don't, we don't share it, Right? But, but here's, for people, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting, and I kind of know you, I believe you're trustworthy people. Trustworthy people means that when you receive the confession, that you're not going to blurt it out to someone else. And so here's how you receive a confession. Here's four things that you put together. Don't be shocked or dismissive. Well, one. Number two, be quiet. Right? As you know, and number three, pray inwardly and imperceptibly as they confess. And four, announce forgiveness and pray for them. So let me go through these, Right? Don't be shocked or dismissive. So when someone confesses to you, I'm going to use Derek because we've been here and he's confessing to sin. He tells me something and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. That's what, or, or even shock could be like, you don't have to say anything. You can just be like. <laughs> right? Or dismissive. That's not a big deal. Oh, I do that all the time. Right? That, neither of those are helpful. 
Don't be shocked or dismissive. Almost, don't bat an eyelid. Nothing should shock you. Right? Um, Richard Foster talks about being a people who are under the cross as we receive confession, meaning we get it. We are all desperate. We all have warts, right? And so we're not shocked in any whatsoever bit as we receive their confession. And so receive it being mindful that you too are in need of God's grace and receptive to it. Two, be quiet, meaning let them talk. Let them get it out as they are specific about what it is, their confession. Let them get it out. You don't have to keep jabbering. You don't have to even create space for them to share it all. A, a silence where they might even be willing. If you kind of think, oh goodness, I think there's probably more. They weren't specific enough. Just be quiet and let them share. So be quiet. The third one. While you're being quiet and allowing them to share, pray for them quietly, under your, inwardly, for them to receive God's forgiveness. And you don't have to make it look like you're praying, right? Don't, you know, you're just, you're just kind of doing, you're kind of like, as they're sharing, if they're just do this, so I'd just be praying, you know, God, let them know your love, but not with my lips, right? Not with my hands. Listening, receiving it, hearing him. It's not important for me to remember what he says, right? So we're praying for them as we receive it to continue to experience the true depth of God's love and forgiveness. And the, the final part, is this, to proclaim with the authority that you have received that they are absolved, forgiven, and to pray for God's healing and love upon them. Now, um, Richard Foster, when he said he did this, he, he wrote it out, right? He wrote out his sins, and he read it before his person, his counselor, his friend, and then he took a sheet of paper, and he was going to stick it in his briefcase, and he said the person grabbed it. And then just ripped it up. Right? And then he said something like this. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are removed from you. You are forgiven. And then he prayed for God's love. God, pour out your love and your goodness upon this person. Let all the sorrow and the pain and anything from the past, let it be removed from them. And let them have healing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right? It could be something like that. Receivers, do you think you could do that? I invite you to do it. I invite us to step into this holy, holy practice between now and Easter in order to battle against the temptation to be spectacular and to step into this beautiful act of confession. So let's pray. So Father... Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you for the reality of the forgiveness of sins. And thank you for the gift of each other that you've given us. That we can know that we walk on this journey together and not alone. And so, God, would you move in our hearts that we might experience uh, more community, more of your love, and battle against these temptations to show ourselves other than we are. Would you give us the courage, God, to take an inventory, and to confess our sins to another? Would you bring a trusted brother or sister to our mind? And would you give us the courage, God, to step before them and to share this? We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.